there's an expectation, certainly from the younger consumer, that you are going to have an ethical approach. It's almost a, a prerequisite now, I think, for a large proportion of the, the consumer base. Hello and welcome to the Age of Plastic podcast with me, Andrea Fox, chatting about sustainability and the environment and that because, you know, eek, climate change. Uh, today, I think we've got a really fun guest for you. Um, more on that uh, in just a second. Of course, we'll have an eco life hack as well and all of the details of how to get in touch are on today's episode. Hope you enjoyed the last episode, which was all about gardening. If that tickles your fancy, plastic-free and low-carbon gardening, go back and listen to the chat with Sally next. Today's episode, I think, is another fun one. Now, charity donations from businesses are getting more and more common, including in the wine industry. Oh, did someone say Beveragino? Today's guests are Sea Change Wine. They say they're passionate about two things, protecting our oceans from plastic pollution and great tasting wine. Every bottle of Sea Change helps fund ocean conservation projects across the globe and they've got very minimal packaging, reducing waste and environmental impact as much as they can. Their partners range in size from global charities like Plastic Oceans UK, who we've had on the podcast before, to smaller charities like Olive Ridley Project and Sea Changes UK. Today's guests are from Sea Change Wine and 10 International is Simon Rolf. We chat about innovation in wine packaging, why people want to buy from a company that does good, COVID and wine. Yeah, sorry, we just can't avoid the pandemic chat, I'm afraid. Climate change and the wine industry and the issues around organic wine production. I hope you find this one interesting, even if you're not a drinker. And a reminder today from me and our guest to please drink responsibly. Here's Simon Rolf from Sea Change. Simon Rolf from Sea Change and 10 International. I'm so excited to talk wine with you today on the Age of Plastic podcast. Thank you for joining me. No problem at all. Pleasure to be here. So we are going to talk a little bit about the history of 10 International, which is the family-run wine business that you work for. You're one of the directors. And... Um, 10 International decided to sort of start this brand, Sea Change, and it came around from one important conversation, didn't it? That's right. Um, it's about three years ago now. We were over at um, a big wine conference in Dusseldorf in Germany. It's called ProVine, and it's probably the biggest sort of global wine event every single year. And um, we were having a, a dinner in a nice German restaurant with some customers from the west coast of Canada who, who buy some of our wine. And um, we were talking about what we were planning to do next. And literally it was a, a, a friendly discussion sort of over dinner saying that we wanted to um, create a, a wine that did a little bit more than, than just made profit for the business. So we wanted to link it to a charity, something that we'd done in the past with um, another one of our wines, Pink Elephant. And um, it was our Canadian customers that, that actually initially gave us the um, the idea uh, uh, about supporting ocean cleanup and anti-plastic uh, mm. charities. So they were saying on the west coast of Canada, British Columbia, it was a really hot topic, and it was something. It was uh, the timing was was fortuitous because it, it hadn't really hit the press in the UK as it certainly has done since. Um, so so the timing was good and. And the seed of Sea Change was born there at that dinner. Amazing. And let's get into exactly what is different about Sea Change. You mentioned plastic, but there's, yeah, I, it's one of those things that I didn't really think about until I came across your brand, uh, that little plastic cover that you get at the top of your wine bottle. So that's gone for starters, right? But what else is different about Sea Change? Absolutely. So we, we decided we wanted to create a wine that not only supported um, ocean cleanup, charities so yep. we donate from every bottle sold but we wanted to make uh, the, the products themselves 
as environmentally friendly as, as possible. So you, you mentioned the capsule cover that, that often goes over the closure. Um, you know, 99% of, of those will be made of a, a plastic PVC derivative. And in our opinion, it's it's just unnecessary. Um, you know, what happens when you open your bottle of wine on a, on a Saturday night, you whip that off and it goes straight in the bin and it goes into landfill. Mm. And, and um, we all know that uh, a proportion of that landfill waste actually ends up in the oceans and, and even if it doesn't it's going to be sticking around for, for 400 years so that that was a relatively easy step in our initial thoughts to just get rid of that because it's it's an aesthetic addition that's not really necessary um we also try to use lightweight glass with a high proportion of recycled glass in it um as light as we can whilst maintaining the sort of integrity of the bottle so we don't get breakages as the wine is transported and bits and pieces like that. Yeah, it can't be um, too light, can it? Or wine wouldn't get no, there. No, that's exactly right. And um, we're always trying to get the balance right um, with these things. So we, we always look to adapt the, the, the dry goods as as time progresses. Um, the other bits we think about are what the labels are made out of. So so our, part of our labels, so some, some of the sea change labels are made out of a particular paper type that is made from reconstituted grape must so the leftover bits are great really um, when you've made your wine um, and the rest of the paper is made from sustainably forested uh, trees and then when we launched the sea change premium wines last summer so first of all the, the Provence Rosé we wanted a transparency um, from a branding perspective to differentiate it from the, the rest of the core range and that was quite an interesting one um, that the options we were presented with traditionally were, were all plastic. And obviously we, we, we won't have any sort of plastic on the, on the bottles at all. So we actually ended up using a material that is, is made from plant cellulose uh, and, and ultimately biodegradable. So it's, it's like the same material that your, um, your food waste bin bag at home may well be produced out of. So over time it will, yeah biodegrade and i think we were one of the first if not the first um wine business to use it as a label it was pretty untested and um uh yeah it's been a, an interesting uh, journey getting it getting it right getting the finish right on it but um, we think we're heading in the right direction so there's that and then the final piece would be the closure as well um so in terms of whether we use cork screw cap we spent a lot of time looking at this um and there's pros and cons for almost all of the options, which is which is something that I've and my colleagues have had to really sort of start to understand as we we've, we've developed the brand. Um, you know, there's lots of positives whether you use a screw cap or a cork. For us, the the, the downside on the screw cap, which is the reason we don't use it, is there is a tiny um, plastic waterproof seal effectively in the top of the uh, aluminium screw cap. So whilst the aluminium is infinitely recyclable and, and positive from that perspective uh, a lot of energy goes in to create the aluminium in the first place and also there's the small disc of plastic which ultimately again will end up somewhere so so we so we use um, a natural cork 
um, option at the moment. Yeah, I just think that's so amazing. You really looked at every single thing that you could possibly do. And you mentioned, you know, I always used to think that that little plastic bit at the top, which, like you say, is most likely PVC, I just used to think that it was aluminium. But it goes back to the sort of history of wine, which I know you know about, and the wine industry and how they sell it to us. Because we talked about the brand of Sea Change and you've got some lovely wines on there, some award-winning wines in the, in the collection there. And... Uh, but I don't think I tend to buy on brand, but you're finding that this brand, rather than buying on like the grape, is really connecting with people wanting to buy sea change, right? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point, uh, Andrea. I think my, my background's not wine. I've worked for 10 International Sea Change for, for about 10 years now. The, the, the business was um, founded by my father and my current business partner, Toby Hancock. Um, back in 2007, I think it was, 2006. Mm. Um, But my background wasn't in wine, so I've come in from a completely different sector and and perhaps approached the industry without a a wine hat on. Um, So some of those traditional uh, expectations uh, maybe we look at with slightly fresher eyes now. Um, And that's something that's interesting. In my view, in my opinion, wine brands historically have been either a region mm-hmm. so people say i like rioca or i like bordeaux or they've been a grape varietal as you mentioned so you get a lot of people saying i like sauvignon blanc or i like malbec you, you've gone to the next level there where you sometimes get a a degree of geography and varietal nowadays so you you, you get people being a little bit more specific and perhaps saying i like marlborough sauvignon blanc so from new zealand or i like uh, Argentinian Malbec, but very, very rarely, if ever, do you find somebody that specifies a particular producer and that is all they will drink or that is their favourite. Um, and you contrast that to some other sectors in the drinks industry, um, spirits, you know, very, very heavily branded. Mm. Um, champagnes, again, heavily branded and, and people will tend to stick or have a favourite champagne. Um, beers as well, you know, strong brand identity. And, and really, it's never never really worked in wine. And there's so many options, so many choices. Um, and things are a little bit confusing, I think, for a lot of consumers. So yeah, Sea Change, we're trying to make transparent, fun. Um, we're trying to maintain uh, the, the, you know, fantastic quality wines f- for the price that do a bit of good for the environment as well and, and hopefully give the consumers uh, uh, a nice feeling when they're enjoying their glass of wine um, but the good thing is people tend to be buying in it seems now and, and actually coming back and trying different varietals within the sea change uh, range we're getting lots of great reverse inquiries and we've never seen this before with any of our other wine labels that, that we produce we're getting restaurants um, airlines cruise lines um pub chains all, all sorts of the industry and consumers themselves reverse inquiring and, and asking how we can get sea change so um yeah it's been fantastic for us so um yeah it feels like we're doing something right yeah completely and like you say about the wine industry it's a it's a very old industry 
wine producers are sort of like farmers, very in touch, I think, with some climate change issues. But there is that sort of barrier. It's, you know, you need to know about the tannins and the body and the areas and the grape varietal. And it's can be quite difficult, which is why I think people get set in their ways, don't they? With like, I'm just going to order Pinot Grigio because I know what I know and I'm going to order this one because the label looks nice or it has that seal at the top. But actually what you've done with Sea Change looks still looks really premium. It looks really classy. You don't feel like you're picking up some cheap fruit wine from the newsagent. It looks great. No, certainly not. And, and the wines are all, uh, as I say, the vast majority of them award-winning in, in serious international competitions and and um you know i think if the product wasn't right we would have really struggled but i think your point in terms of people feeling safe is an important one again away from the wine industry i think i experienced the nervousness that a lot of people experience with wine i think a lot of people love wine and enjoy it but it can often be a, a it's a language of, isn't it it's a language, yeah, it's a language to itself people feel a little bit uncomfortable we all know the feeling being in a restaurant you know with friends or your partner and someone hands you the wine list and you don't want to choose something that's too expensive you don't want to seem cheap and buy something that's too cheap you don't, don't want to mispronounce want to, it because they don't want to mispronounce <laughs> it you know a cardinal sin so you can see why consumers as a as a group default to things that feel safe and and they know so you know, there's a reason why Pinot Grigio performs so strongly in the UK. I think it's because it's consistent. It doesn't tend to be too extreme in any way in terms of taste profile. You know, it's a safe option. People know how to pronounce it. Um, and, and in some respects, you know, that's a shame because it, there's so many fantastic wines out there. And I think if the industry had perhaps been a little bit um, less or more transparent and less confusing, I think consumers will be a little bit more comfortable trying wines and different wines. And an interesting example for us, our, set, our top selling wine is, is the Prosecco, which it's not got that a lot surprising. of awards as well, right? Hasn't it? It, it has done. It has done. And uh, it's a lovely wine, but very, very on trend wine, obviously very, very popular. Um, you know, everyone likes a, a, a bottle of fizz these days. But the second best selling wine on our website is on Negro Amaro, which is a great variety that. I would wager many of your listeners have never even heard of and definitely couldn't spell. I know you know that I love a wine tour. I have never heard of the Negromano grape. Where's that from? Negromano, yeah. So it's from southern Italy. So uh, if you imagine Puglia down by the sort of boot, the heel of Italy, um, sort of lovely, warm, long summers. So really intensely fruity, juicy red wine. Now, we, we didn't expect this wine to be the second best seller on, on uh, within the range but it has turned out to be so I think again it's it's that sense of community and, and brand where people are obviously seeing other people's comments about the, the Negromaro on um, on Instagram or Facebook or on the website the Vivino things like that and are obviously willing to give it a try and stylistically it works super well you know it's a lovely round red easy drinking um, you know very smooth so it, it ticks a lot of boxes. But I think if it was just sitting on a shelf and there was no lead in, a lot of people, again, would probably not risk it and would just yeah. default to, uh, well, I have a Merlot um, just, to, just to be on the safe side. So mm. yeah, I think times are changing. And, and hopefully as we expand the sea change range, um, our customers that are confident that they like the, you know, most of the wines in there will try other, will try other wines and, uh, and, and see how they go. 
I love that this is turning into like a food and drink episode of the Age of Plastic podcast. <laughs> I love it. Um, let's touch on then something else that you mentioned there about um, consumers wanting to buy a product that does well. We hear a lot about this. We talk about it a lot on the podcast. Um, lots more people these days either want to work for a company that's doing some good or they want to make sure their money is going that way. And that's clearly what you've experienced with Sea Change, right? No, absolutely. And um, it, it was something that I think came from the ideals of all the three directors of the business now. So I say myself, Toby Hancock and, and Ian Hanley, um, you know, and my father, Bill, as well, who, who retired about five years ago. But um, we've always had an angle where we wanted to give something back. Um, you know, obviously, it's a great industry to work in the wine trade. But uh, as with all industries, we're aware that you've got to do more than just look after yourselves. And I think the link with Sea Change and all the brilliant charity partners we're working with all around the world, it does set us apart from a lot of other um, wine producers. Um, obviously, there are other wines out there and other uh, drinks brands that are supporting different noble causes, which is fantastic. But as you say, I think nowadays it's becoming more and more important. Um, I, I think there's an expectation, certainly from um the younger consumer that you are going to have an ethical approach um that you know it's, it's almost a, a prerequisite now i think for a large proportion of the uh the the consumer base you mm. know th that you do that so i think it's becoming less and less of a choice um and obviously we're very happy that the, the, that was our ethos right from the start of 10 international as i say the first ever wine that was launched was Pink Elephant all those years ago, and and that supported another charity, um, the Elephant Family. Um, so it's always been in the sort of DNA of the company, and um, yeah, long long may. Nice, and it's nice that consumers are catching up with this as well. Um, we spoke to ITV. And they were saying that most brands these days, if you don't have some sort of environmental, social um, element, then you're not seen as a modern brand. And one of the other things we spoke to about ITV was the effect of COVID on the business. So are we able to touch on that just slightly? Because in a way, COVID kind of gave you the time to put into sea change. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. So traditionally, 10 International has always been a, a wine business that's sold to trade. So we would sell to wholesalers or pub chains or restaurant groups, uh, both in the UK and internationally as well. And, and it was always a, a B2B or a business to business mm. um, sort of setup. Um, we knew we were on to something with Sea Change, as I say, when we sort of started it about three years ago and, and then properly launched it about two years ago. And the, the initial sales to trade were, were fantastic. Uh, and we were seeing really strong growth, uh, both in the UK and internationally. Then obviously the, the COVID-19 situation hit. Um, and obviously, would it have been this time last year in 2020, mm -hmm. sort of end of March, the on-trade shut down. Um, so all the on-premise um, venues where you could enjoy a glass of wine in the UK and pretty much globally shut down. And we'd moved very heavily in the last few years into that sector. So we've moved away from selling to supermarkets, which we don't sell to anymore in the UK, and much more focused on that on trade and inter independent retailer, so slightly smaller specialist wine shops. But in terms of the on trade, which was our biggest area, obviously it just shut overnight. So slightly terrifying to, for you, right? <laughs> we had a yeah, a few 
few sleepless nights um, in the in the early days. Imagine. You know, we're a small team. There's 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 only eleven of us, and and it is still like a family. And um, obviously, concerns about all my colleagues who who are friends as well. I would I wouldn't be afraid to say. You know, concerned about all of their situations and, and hoping that we were able to to do something to make sure that we we came through the uh, the lockdown situation you know at least on par but if not come come out stronger on the other side and um we were basically almost forced into looking at the d2c so the director sort of consumer model and e-commerce model for sea change which we were always going to do probably you know we liked the idea we thought it would work but the truth is it would have been difficult to give it the same degree of focus and time that we have in the past 12 months um without the um covid19 um, situation so the truth is there's probably a, a silver lining um in terms of the brand at least um that we we've had to pivot towards that model um, you know, we'd never operated an e-commerce website at this point last year. And yeah, and all of a sudden now we're, we're already thinking about Christmas 2021 and, and how we're going to be able to fulfill our expected demand, which I think is going to be, um, yeah, uh, an interesting challenge. But um, it's, it's certainly given us a more direct relationship with the consumer as well, which I think is vital in terms of that brand creation. I think that would have been very difficult to get the level of engagement and communication between us and our consumers and between just the consumers themselves, which is um, something that is, is pretty brand new to for us to see. Psst. Hey, whilst we're at the midway point of today's episode, don't forget, if you have a subject you'd like me to cover on the Age of Plastic podcast, maybe your own eco life hack you've discovered you'd like to share, or you've just got a comment for me, send me a letter. Only kidding. Uh, find us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Age of Plastic Podcast. And I'm on Twitter, Andrea underscore Fox. And you can also send me a message via my website, iamandreafox.co.uk. Okay, back to today's Age of Plastic Podcast guest. Thinking about the wine industry, how do you think historically the wine industry has sort of viewed climate change? Because I've been quite surprised sometimes when I've done wine tours in France to see if people are listening and they aren't aware a Bordeaux, for example, can only be made out of a certain six kind of grape varieties, but they may not survive in a rising climate in certain areas of France. So they're already looking and testing at what grapes might be allowed in future. I've been to chateaus and seen a Tesla parked up outside. Obviously, there's very few. If you're a successful vineyard owner, you can probably afford the chateau and the Tesla. But I, it was interesting to see that attitude around climate change. I don't know whether this happens in areas like America, but what's your sort of opinion of, of that climate change and, and the wine and drinks industry? Have they always gone hand in hand? I think uh, it's a good question. And I think there's probably different sectors of the industry where it's taken more seriously. So when you actually go to the... To the um, the, the wineries themselves, the vineyards themselves. I think, as you mentioned, you know, effectively, yeah, it's an agricultural good. Um, the, the the growers themselves are um, very aware of the environment, the the soil that they, you know, that their crop is grown in every year. You know, you hear the word terroir, which is obviously a, a, well, a classic bit of the old wine jar. Mud. To, yeah, <laughs> mud. Yeah, what, what, what the mud's like, effectively, and the, the environment around it. But it's always been an intrinsic part of the 
the, the from a grower's perspective and a winemaker's perspective, it's super important. You know, you hear about vintage variation. Now, what that means is really what the weather's been like the year they've grown the grapes. You know, obviously, if you have, um, you know, good weather for growing grapes, you tend to get a decent wine at the end of it. If you have a poor set of weather where there's hail very um, sort of late in the winter into the spring, can damage the crop if there's too much rain in the summer, not enough rain in the summer, can all have a big, big impact. So I think the, the, the growers themselves have always been aware. And, uh, and, and I think that aspect of it is, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're very focused on the environmental side. Um, you're getting more and more growers considering the benefits of going organic now as well, which um, again is, you know, there's a definite feeling in my opinion of a, of a move towards more organic produce, whether it be wine or other consumables. Um, it's quite an interesting topic though, that one, mm. in that some of the wineries we work with could go organic if, if they wanted to, but actually have decided to adopt certain envir yeah, environmentally friendly practices throughout their operation, but they don't want to adopt a full organic certification because of some of the requirements in terms of um, uh, protecting the grape from blight or different diseases um, throughout the year, where the organic uh, method would be to spray with a effectively a heavy metal, so a sort of copper sulfate type uh, spray to, to stop the, the grapes rotting uh, in, in sort of basic terms when, when it's warm and sort of damp environment. But the problem with that um, is that it's a contact um, method. So you spray your grapes with your, uh, or spray your vine with your, your copper sulfate. And then if it rains, that all gets washed off. Or if the vine grows itself in some, you know, five centimeters in a day when it's super nice weather and it's in the growth season, the, the new growth isn't covered. So if, if there's the right weather the next few days you, you might get your, your sort of mildew or on, on the new growth so they end up having to spray quite a lot of times um, with it with a heavy metal now there's certain uh, growers that will say that is still the best best method you know I'd rather do that than spray with a an antifungal chemical twice a year there will be other growers that would say well actually I think spraying twice with a chemical environmentally is the the better option than spraying 10 times with a heavy metal in mm. terms of the damage that would do to the the ecosystem and the soils uh in my um exactly because that so, copper goes somewhere right into the yeah, mud of course, and it gets washed down so the, the the really interesting thing i think from my perspective is you know is i don't think there's a right or wrong answer you know the good news is more and more growers are focusing in on the environment environmental impact of what they're doing and they're making informed decisions mm -hmm. and for different wineries that then it depends on the environment and the uh the the weather and so many different factors about where you are based but at least i think now they are making as i say the best choices yeah uh, and and not just blindly plowing ahead without the the, the foresight 
And it's exactly what you just touched on there. Um, There isn't like one perfect answer and one perfect solution. Like you mentioned earlier when you were going through all the processes in rethinking how you actually bottle the wine that you produce. It's what we talk about on this podcast quite a lot. We've spoken to sustainable brands that have certain aspects of their product that might biodegrade. But when it came to putting them in something, actually the plastic was the more carbon neutral option. And it's this thing of there's no one way to do things and lots of sustainable practices may have other sort of things that adversely affect. And I think the copper spraying of vines is one example of that. So it's kind of finding the best route that we can, but nothing's going to be perfect, is it? There's no such thing as zero waste wine producing or zero waste living, really, realistically. Not not that I've I've come across yet. Um, you know, I think there are improvements every year. And, and what we're striving for is, is to simply do the best we can. Um, as I say, as a small business, um, you know, we certainly aren't perfect, but what we are trying to do is keep our eyes and ears open. And when there is a better option, you know, we will look to, to take that. Yeah, completely. And we've touched on organic with uh, in terms of wine production, but do you think the sort of drinks and beverage industry or consumers of that industry could be doing more to become not only more sustainable, but more plastic free? Certainly would be my view on, on, on that one. You know, if you if you think of some of the the large global drinks producers, you know, um, yeah, perhaps away from wine, but a lot of those drinks are produced in PET bottles. Um, uh, I, I think over time we will see change. Um, but my view of, of some of the bigger corporates is we will only get the the meaningful material change when it becomes an economic requirement for them to do so Uh, and whether that is through legislation change or whether raw material cost prices increase to the point where um, reusing certain plastic compounds becomes the only way if, 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 if certain plastic compounds become too expensive to produce if you don't um recoup or reuse what's already out in the environment um i, I think uh, yeah that will be the point when we'll start seeing massive change and it's a shame that we can't speed that up because obviously every year the the amount of, of plastic waste that is ending up in the oceans ending up in landfill um yeah, it's it's not good when you when you delve into the the detail. Yeah, it is a shame, and I know we're talking about a slightly different industry, but the particular fizzy drinks brand I can think of with their marketing campaign about don't forget to recycle our bottle, which includes zero percent recycled plastic. You know, uh, they're not funding any particular ways to make it easier to recycle their product. So, uh, and when I think no. about it, there are sort of drinks brands, especially at festivals, you might see certain or gigs certain bottled beers, for example that come in those plastic bottles that could be doing more to keep those in a sort of circular economy. So do you think maybe circular economy is the kind of, as well as, like you say, some legislation, cost of the raw materials um, that might help to keep that sort of like circular economy ideas maybe in the drinks industry? I think it will certainly help. I think ultimately the the consumer has more power than than we realise. And I put myself in, in that consumer bracket as well. As people make this everyday decisions about what they buy in, in every sector it, it, it will make a difference over time so if you if, if you get more and more consumers moving towards 
more environmentally friendly products, the market itself will move that way, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Naturally. Um, you know, another frustration I sometimes feel as well is that you, you, you hear a lot about sort of recycling plastic and, you know, don't worry, you know, just recycle it, it'll be okay. As you may well know, and a lot of your listeners will know, that there's a there's a limit, a finite limit to the number of times you can recycle plastic. And it's not that high. So, you know, even if you do recycle your fizzy drink bottle, you can only do it a handful of times before it ends up in landfill anyway. So it's not something, yeah, aluminium was mentioned earlier on, mm. which I think you, if my science is correct, you can you can recycle that an infinite number of times. Yes, there's an in- energy input that's significant, but if you're using renewables to fuel the 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 the, um, the industrial process mm. you don't actually lose any of that raw material um whereas with plastic i'm not sure recycling is the solution it's certainly better than not recycling but i don't think that's going to get us out of the problem we're in in terms of the plastic in the oceans you know we need to make some positive changes there's no need to have any plastic on wine so yeah why don't we get rid of all the capsule covers yeah quite frankly Completely. And talking, touching on glass as well, you know, uh, like aluminium, you can recycle that infinitely as far as I'm aware. But one of the things I think I've been told before is um, with recycled glass, it all tends to be a slightly different colour. And again, premium brands, you know, if we're talking about wine, they want their Bordeaux in this particular colour and their champagne in this particular colour and their, you know, Chardonnay in this one. So do you think maybe that sort of marketing i suppose because that's essentially what it is maybe Mm. when as sort of ideas around that begin to change maybe that might be something we see more of recycled glass in wine production absolutely and yeah i I think hopefully most producers would like to see that recycled percentage increase you know just fundamentally feels like the right thing to do um you know the point about slightly off color bottles you know if you think about most red wine coming in that sort of dead leaf green color you know i'm no i'm no designer myself but you know a slight color variation in that i'm not sure the average consumer would you know really pick up on i guess the bigger issue will be with clear glass Mm. um but again i think it comes down to the consumer you know if, if consumers were happy to buy premium wines in slightly off colored but fully recycled bottles i think you would see the market move towards that Mm. um you know far quicker i think there would be a reluctance from a lot of big brands as you've mentioned before that they wouldn't want to risk their brand um identity but you know you know i do strongly feel that the way the market is moving and consumers are moving in recent times will speed up that process because yeah. I think people are less worried about that now and more worried about the impact that their consumption is having on the planet. Yeah, I completely agree with you completely. I'm also not a designer, as anyone who's seen the logo for the Age of Plastic podcast will know. Um, we always ask our guests, Simon, two very important questions. Now, you've talked about removing plastic from sea change, but plastic is a good material. So is there anything in your life that you're like, I'm glad that we have plastic for that. Hopefully it's not single use. Yeah, that would be a very bad answer if it was. Um, This is an interesting one, I think. Um, I would probably have to say uh, footballs, 
which nowadays are synthetic. No so, longer yeah, the pig... skin or the, the stomach of a pig or whatever it was no, back in the no, day, so. in the 1900s. No, I, think, <laughs> yeah, I think we're going back a long way when they were the bladders of pigs. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, uh, yeah, I'm a big football fan. So, um, yeah, I think I would have to go with, with the, the humble football. That is a very good one and not one we've had on the podcast before. I always love it when people say something brand new. Um, also as well, if you could share your environmental hero with us. Yes, certainly. This this is a, an interesting story, I think. So when we started coming up with the concept of sea change, we, we didn't really have the name at this point. We knew sort of broadly what we wanted to do, but we, we started researching um, which charities potentially would be good to support and, and what they do and and, and how far they, they reach, whether it's UK focus, global focus. And, um, and we spoke to, to quite a number. Um, we ended up uh, meeting a lady called Joe Ruxton, um, who I think has actually been on this very podcast. The very well. first guest, no less. <laughs> Look at that. So, but, well, I met Joe right back when we started um, uh, talking about sea changes of concept. And that first meeting with her really opened my eyes to the issue you know i i knew about ocean plastic problems and uh, just the problem some elements of damage that was being done to the ocean but really from a lay person's perspective you know i knew it wasn't good i'd seen blue planet but that was probably the extent of my personal sort of technical knowledge um you spend an hour with with joe and she really changed my you know, perception of the issue. She's such a passionate woman and um, a, a real advocate for everything that we're trying to achieve. And and we've ended up working very closely with, with Plastic Oceans UK, which she started and they just rebranded to Ocean Generation. You know, they do such, such, such fantastic work. And um, yeah, certainly Joe, I think, would be someone that I would hold in that regard as my environmental hero. Lovely. And we've come full circle on the podcast then. If you're our most recent episode and she was the very first one, Simon from 10 International and Sea Change Wines. Thank you so much for chatting to me for the Age of Plastic podcast. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Well, what a wine snob I am. Uh, doesn't everything sound better in French though? Mud, terroir. Big thank you to Simon Rolf from Sea Change and 10 International there. And if you're one of my friends listening to this podcast, who I know is from Puglia, why were you holding out on this wine knowledge from me? I hope you enjoyed this chat today. You can find out more about Sea Change Wine. We'll pop all the links in the show notes, but seachangewine.com is where to head. And also, we mentioned one of our very early episodes with Plastic Oceans director Joe Ruxton when I was first sort of starting out on this plastic-free, sustainable environmental journey. I will link to Joe's episode in the show notes, but please don't judge. It's very early. I haven't listened back to the early ones. I'm sure I'd be incredibly embarrassed and said a load of dumb things. Long may that continue. We evolve, thankfully. The motto of this podcast, and probably my life, is done, not perfect. And in case you're heading off to a pub quiz in a pub garden from the 12th of April, 1862, that's when bladders became rubber and not pig in footballs. Still leather until the 1980s. Today's eco life hack then. You may have noticed last week was Earth Day. Now, the group We Don't Have Time used this to launch their brand new app. It's basically like a social media app, right? For the sharing of environmental ideas, environmental articles, environmental thoughts. Um, I've seen recently that Pebble magazine have decided to come away from Facebook. 
So I wonder whether this could be the new area that we decide to share eco ideas. I'm on the app. I'm just lurking at the moment. I haven't actually had the guts to post anything. Standard when you first join a social media app, right? If you want to find out more, head to your app store and download the free app. Just search for We Don't Have Time. Big thanks to Alicia, who reached out on Instagram to say she's feeling very inspired by the podcast. Thank you, my love. She is Alicia, aka the Eco Virtual Assistant. Now, I've been doing a few podcast swaps this series, and she heard the podcast I did with Sustainable Shift Podcast. Uh, I've got a little podcast swap with Patria from that uh, podcast as well coming up. And speaking of podcast swaps, next week on the Age of Plastic podcast, another brilliant podcaster talking all things climate change and COVID-19. Matt Rees is my guest. He's an author and the host of the award-winning Climate Solutions podcast. Now, COVID-19 has been terrible for humans, obviously, but has it been a good or a bad thing in terms of the environment? We discuss this and changing attitudes around the climate with Matt Rees on the next episode of the Age of Plastic podcast. Thanks for downloading and listening this far. Enjoy your plastic-free, ethically sourced and produced Easter eggs this weekend, and I'll see you next time on the Age of Plastic podcast. Thank you.